Well, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open it to John chapter 19. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of John, and we're actually nearing the end of our study of the Gospel of John. I mentioned this last week, but we are in the middle now of a series of four messages exploring the events that took place on Good Friday. So last week we looked at the end of chapter 18 and in that passage we uh, saw what happened when the officials uh, brought Jesus before Pilate and Pilate examined him and found no guilt in him. Uh, And we sort of looked at the trial that took place uh, for Jesus. Today we're looking at uh, the continuation of that story. What happens now as Pilate is before the Roman governor? What sentence or judgment will Pilate bring against Jesus. But really, at the heart of this passage uh, is an issue, uh, is the issue of control. Who is in control or who is in charge of all that is happening? So we're going to look at that this morning, explore that through the lens of this passage. But before I actually read the passage for you, I just want to tell you uh, one of my favorite movies of all time. I know that's why you come here on Sundays is to get Movie recommended, but one of my favorite movies of all times is uh, Captain Phillips. Now, I don't know if you've seen that movie. The movie's actually based on a true story, based on events that happened in 2009. Uh, Tom Hanks plays the role of Captain Richard Phillips. He is the captain of an unarmed, large container vessel that is making its way around the Horn of Africa to Mombasa, Kenya. But the ship is followed by a group of Somali pirates who follow the ship and then eventually board the ship. And again, the ship is unarmed. They have no means of defense. So the pirates eventually, uh, spoiler alert, but it's an old movie, so, you know, whatever. Um, They take Captain Phillips hostage aboard the lifeboat of that uh, vessel. And the ringleader of the Somali pirates is a man by the name of Abduwali Moose. Much of the movie centers around the issue of who is in control or who is in charge. Is it Captain Phillips, the rightful captain of the ship? Or is it the man who's holding the gun who's in charge? And there's a memorable scene where Abduwali says to Captain Phillips, he says, look at me. Look at me. I'm the captain now. And that's kind of the tension that runs through the movie. Who's in charge? Who's in control? Now, Captain Phillips remains uh, level-headed. He remains calm throughout the whole ordeal. The Somali pirates are not actually in control. They've got the guns. They're giving the orders. But they're never actually in control. They're not in control of their emotions. They're not in control of their actions. And as they will discover, they are not in control of their fate. Now, I say that because we meet a similar scene here in John chapter 19 when it comes to the question of who's in charge or who's in control. So listen now as I read John 19, verses 1 to 16. This is what it says. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of purple, or wearing the purple robe, 
And when the chief priest and Pilate said to them, behold, the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Well, as I said, I think the question that lies at the heart of this passage is who's in control or who's in charge. And I want to answer that question and I want to answer it as we explore this passage by highlighting three potential candidates for who's in control and then focusing on the one who is ultimately in control. So let's start with the three potential candidates. The first candidate is the soldiers. Now, Roman soldiers were imposing figures in the first century. You've uh, probably seen pictures or dramatic reenactments, and maybe they were imposing in that, or maybe they, they weren't. But even just if you read Paul's description of a soldier, uh, when he describes them in Ephesians 6, and you, you can see the kind of equipment they were outfitted with, the breastplate, the shield, and the sword, all of that. But they weren't just physically imposing. Roman soldiers were endowed with a good deal of authority. They were endowed with that by the Roman government. They were powerful. They acted as guards. They policed roadways. They collected taxes. Sometimes they collected even more taxes or extra taxes. Who could refuse the demands of a Roman soldier? They had great power. They were also responsible for enforcing discipline and meeting out punishment. The passage begins by saying that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And now what it means is that he had the soldiers flog Jesus. And verses 2 and 3 give us a description of the kind of treatment they gave Jesus. It says there, And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So the soldiers have this physical power and control. You get the the sense that they were accustomed to this kind of thing. Uh, They didn't mind dishing out a few extra blows to those who were under their charge. They seemed to especially relish the mocking and the beating that they could inflict on Jesus. I mean, they had heard the reports, this is the king of the Jews and all of that. So they engage in this kind of mock 
coronation ceremony. They get out a robe. They put that on Jesus. They take a, a, a crown of thorns. They push that down on his head. They deliver blows to him. They bow in kind of fake adoration and say, Hail, King of the Jews. They punch him in the face. Uh, the other gospels tell us that they, as they struck him, they would, he was probably blindfolded. And they said, prophesy, who hit you, Christ? And in one of the most degrading acts, they spit upon him. This is what they did with their control or power. So to the outside observer, it would have looked, it no doubt looked like the soldiers were the ones in control. They had their way with Jesus. They did whatever they wanted to do. Now, if you step back and think about it, we know that soldiers are never really in charge. Now, armies are always based on a ranking system. In the Roman military, in the Roman structure, you had soldiers. And above them, you had centurions. Those were uh, those who were in charge of a hundred or more soldiers. Above the centurions, uh, you had sort of different levels of government. You had the prefects and the tribunes. Above them was the legate. And above that was the governor, in this case, Pontius Pilate. And above him was Caesar, the Roman emperor. So it's clear, these soldiers are actually just carrying out the wishes of Pilate, who ordered Jesus to be flogged. Now, had Pilate said, look, he's innocent, I'm going to set him free, but he needs protection. You need to give him protection as you walk him. They would have done exactly as they were told to do. They don't actually have control. But there's an even clearer indication that the soldiers weren't the ones in charge. Look ahead a little bit to verses 23 and 24 of this chapter. Notice what it says there. It says, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier and also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says they divided my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. So the soldiers think, look, uh, we don't just get to be part of this. We actually get to, to keep some some of this stuff for ourselves, some free stuff. Uh, but there's this tunic and, you know, it's, it's one garment and, and we don't want to tear it. So let's just gamble for it. Now, in their minds, they are just acting according to their whims and their wishes. But their actions are actually confirming what God had prophesied would happen. That they would cast lots for the clothing of the Messiah. Uh, look ahead a little bit further uh, into John 19 to verses 31 to 37. It says, since it was the day of Passover or the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But... When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has has borne witness, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they 
have pierced. So the soldiers didn't know that this is what they were doing, right? They weren't thinking, hey, we're just doing what the Old Testament predicted all along that we would do. The soldiers were acting freely, but their free actions were actually in accord with what God had decreed would happen beforehand and what God said would happen. Now, the scriptures that were being fulfilled were found in two different places. The first is Psalm 22, where it says, For dogs encompass me, a a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. In Zechariah chapter 12, we read this, And I will pour out on the house of David and and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one weeps for or mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So the soldiers think they're in charge. It kind of looks like they're in charge, but they're not in charge. Actually doing exactly what God said they would do. So if they weren't in charge, maybe the religious leaders were the ones in charge. Uh, Religious leaders had a certain level of control in Israel. Uh, These ones in particular were kind of the cream of the crop, right? We, We read here that the high priests were there. We know from the other gospels that it was the members of the Sanhedrin or the Jewish ruling council who also came to, uh, to bring Jesus to, to Pilate. So every one of these individuals held a position of power, status, authority in Israel. They'd already held their own trials or trial of Jesus. And now it appears like they've even managed to figure out a way to get the Romans to carry out their wishes. That they're kind of the ones pulling all the strings. So maybe they're in charge. Right? I mean, they wanted Jesus dead. And you can go back all the way to the third sign that Jesus performed. uh, To see that this was their desire. This this was their wish. In chapter 5, we read about Jesus healing a paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. And this is the response. Listen to this response. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, that's, that's as far back as you can read to say the, the Jews had this desire, the Jewish officials had this desire to see Jesus killed or executed. And that tension continues to build throughout the Gospel of John. You've seen it along the way. John 7 begins like this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. In John chapter 8, they actually thought about doing the deed themselves. It says there, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And then after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, uh, they really set their plan in motion. Everything that comes to fulfillment on Good Friday, it says there at the end of John 11, so from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now, I understand that if you are seeking a murder charge, like in a trial, in a court of law, 
uh, you have to be able to prove both motive and opportunity, right? At least that's what I've seen on the TV shows that I've watched, right? Those are the, the, the two things I know. Now, the Jews clearly had the motive. They've had this motive for a long time. We want Jesus dead. Now they've got the opportunity. If we can get the Romans to do it, our wishes will happen. And it looks like they're in control. But they weren't in control. And I think you can see their lack of control in at least three ways in this passage. Firstly, you can see it in the fact that, you know, they know themselves. They can't really carry out their desires without the cooperation of Pilate. And Pilate actually doesn't think much of them. So listen again to verses 4 and 5. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Now, when we read that, we can't really know for certain the tone, the way Pilate has said, behold the man. How is he saying that? But I, I, I think the context gives us a clue. I think the best way to read Pilate's words here is with a sense of derision or scoffing towards the religious leaders. So he brings Jesus out. He's dressed in this sort of fake royal clothing. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. There's blood coming down his face. Jesus looks like a pretty pathetic figure at this moment. And Pilate says to the leaders, behold the man. And I think what he's really saying is, look, is this the one you're so afraid of? I mean, is this really what's causing all your fear and agitation? He, it's pathetic. You're afraid of him? He doesn't look like a king at all. I think a second way you see their lack of control is in their inability to control their emotions, right? So at the end of the last chapter, they made this terrible decision to ask for the release of Barabbas, a known criminal, so that the innocent Jesus would be executed. Now their emotions have such a hold on them that when Pilate brings Jesus out, all they can do is shout, crucify him, crucify him. And this becomes a kind of chorus that they chant on Good Friday. We see it again in verse 15. Pilate brings Jesus out, says, behold, your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. So they've succumbed to a kind of mob mentality. They can't help but give voice to their bloodlust. They want Jesus dead. That's it. That's the thing controlling them at this moment. That's all they care about. And just as an aside, maybe it's worth pointing out, this crowd shouting crucify him is not the same crowd that greeted Jesus on Palm Sunday with shouts of hallelujah. Preachers sometimes like to make that point. They say, oh, you know, we're so fickle that, you know, one day we're singing Hosanna in the highest and five days later we're shouting crucify him. It's actually a different crowd if you read the, if you read the passage. Um, in any case, there, there's a third thing that I think reveals the fact that the religious leaders were not in charge here. Notice what they say at the end of verse 15. So Pilate brings Jesus out, says, behold your king. They cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have 
No king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Now, you have to understand something about the first century Jewish mindset to understand how appalling that statement was. The Romans were the ruling power over Israel. But the Jews resented and in many ways detested the Romans. They did not like to acknowledge Caesar. They were certainly not keen on proclaiming that Caesar is king or Caesar is Lord. But that's exactly what they do here. That's the exchange they make to see their desires fulfilled. They're not in control. Now, we we are all worshipers by nature. If we don't worship the one true God, we will inevitably worship lesser gods. And the religious leaders worshipped power and position. And in saying, we have no king but Caesar, what they're really doing is they're just giving voice to what is in their hearts. We reject God as king and we will submit ourselves to whoever we need to. So if the soldiers with their military muscle weren't in charge, and if the religious leaders with their titles, their robes, their social standing, if they weren't the ones in charge, maybe Pilate was in charge. He's the third potential candidate. So let's look at Pilate. And again, from the outside, Pilate looks like the ideal candidate to be the one who's in charge. He's the highest ranking among them in terms of earthly power, right? He's got the position Pilate was the governor over Judea. He wasn't elected to that position. He was appointed to that position by Rome. And Rome was the only superpower of its day. So he's got all that power standing behind him. The Jews know they can't lawfully execute Jesus. And they know they can't get the Romans to do it unless Pilate signs off on it. Pilate had worldly power. He had worldly authority. But again, as you read the passage, it becomes clear he's actually not in control here either. Uh, When when I read it, I find Pilate to be a bit of a sympathetic figure. He's sort of unwittingly brought into the middle of this whole mess. Now, verse 1 tells us Pilate had Jesus flogged. And we might wonder, well, why did he do that? Uh, Luke's gospel, I think, helps us understand a little bit of Pilate's thinking in this regard. It says there, Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. See, that's what Pilate wants to do. He actually wants to release Jesus. His thinking was, well, look, maybe if I punish him and I bring him out on display publicly, everyone can see he's been beaten, that'll be enough. That'll satisfy their wishes. And then I can do what I want, which is to release him. But that strategy didn't work. John goes on to tell us that Pilate wanted to and actually tried to release Jesus. In verse 12, it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Now, Pilate wanted to release Jesus, but he couldn't release Jesus. And the reason he couldn't release Jesus was political. 
Now just, just think about that for a minute. The thing that Pilate wanted was political power. But the thing that trapped him from doing what he wanted to do was political power. The Jewish officials laid down an ultimatum of sorts. They said, look, if you release Jesus, we will let Caesar know that you released a man who's opposed to his rule. Now, there was historical context to this. Uh, The Caesar at this time, the emperor, was Tiberius. He succeeded his stepfather, Caesar Augustus. And Tiberius Caesar was known to be quick to entertain suspicions against his subordinates. Historical records tell us about a high-ranking official, Alias Sejanus, who was another Roman prefect. He was in charge of the Praetorian Guard. He was considered the friend of Caesar, literally, until suspicions were aroused against him, and he was executed along with anyone who was close to him in AD 31. So Pilate is trying to spare himself that fate. He is caught in a political trap that's been set by the religious officials. So he has power, but he's actually completely powerless. He knows he's in a lose-lose situation. Since it's political power he wants and wants to hang on to, he has no choice but to go along with the demands of the religious leaders. Matthew tells us, so when Pilate saw he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water, washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, his blood be on us and on our children. Now, Pilate, what he wants to do is to wash his hands of the whole mess, right? It's not my responsibility. I don't bear any responsibility, but you can't do it. He can't do that. He actually has the authority. He actually has the power to release Jesus. He just doesn't have the power because... He's going to lose his power. So the soldiers weren't in control. The religious leaders weren't in control. Pilate wasn't in control. Why do I bother pointing all of that out? Well, I think what we ought to see from those three examples is the fact that we are not as free as we think we are. We are not in control. Uh, we, We like to think we're in control. Our thinking often lines up with the last line of William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, right? I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I'm in charge. So the soldiers think they're in charge because they can dish out mockery and punishment. But in reality, they're completely subject to their commanding officers and to their own base instincts. They're just cogs in the system. The religious leaders think, well, they're in control because they can actually see the fulfillment of their plan. Jesus is sentenced to death by crucifixion. That's exactly what they wanted. But it's clear that rather than being in control, they were being controlled by their hatred and by their jealousy. Everything they do is motivated by that. That's not control. Pilate was motivated by power. He would do whatever it took to hold on to his position. But there is a difference between having a position and having control or being in charge. The very thing Pilate worshipped was his undoing. Uh, A number of years ago, I I, I read a book, not wrote a book. Last week I said I wrote a book and my kids found it hilarious. I haven't heard the end of it all week, but I read a book entitled We Become What We Worship. 
The book was written by uh, Greg Beale, and the thesis of the book was simple. He said this, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. What people revere, they resemble either for ruin or for restoration. And he traces that theme throughout scripture to show that we are worshipers by nature We all worship something or someone, and what we worship exposes and changes us. So we either revere the world and are conformed to the sinful patterns of the world, or we revere God and are progressively conformed to his likeness. And I think you can see evidences of of that in all three of the candidates for who's in charge. The soldiers become the worst version of themselves thoughtlessly meeting out punishment on an innocent man. The religious leaders were so addicted to external religiosity and the praise of man that they will do whatever it takes to rid themselves of the one who threatens all of that. Pilate worshipped politics and power and found himself trapped in the very system he idolized. Now that can actually happen to any one of us. Set your affections on the wrong thing And you become that thing. So if none of these people were in charge, who was? And I think this passage actually helps us understand what control actually looks like. So what does control look like? So earlier I mentioned a scene from the movie Captain Phillips, right? Captain Phillips, I think, remained in control the whole time, even when it looked like he wasn't. But since you come for movie recommendations on Sunday, there's another movie that I think demonstrates something similar. So for my money, The Dark Knight is one of the best superhero films ever. It's a a little bit dark, but it's actually a, a great movie. And there's a scene in that movie where the Joker is finally caught. He's put in jail. He's interrogated by Batman. He's beaten so as to make him talk. And he remains completely calm through the whole thing. And the reason is because he knows something that the officers do not know. His arrest was actually part of his plan. Now, maybe this seems like a strange point of comparison, Jesus and the Joker, but there are some similarities between that scene and this scene. What does control look like? Let me give you two quick answers to that question. Firstly, it looks like Jesus in his silence. So Pilate wasn't in control. He wasn't in charge. Uh, And that's not just because Caesar ranked above him. You actually see it most clearly in his exchange with Jesus in verses 9 to 11. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So who's in control here? I mean, Pilate wants Jesus to talk. He wants him to defend himself. And you can see that he actually becomes agitated about it. Now, Pilate already knows Jesus is innocent, but he wants him to make some kind of protest about his 
defense or some injustice being done to him. And we should note the contrast between Pilate and Jesus here. Pilate is panicked. He is caught in a trap. It looks like he's losing control. He's going back and forth between the people on the outside and Jesus on the inside. And every time someone says something, he wants to do something different. Jesus remains completely calm through the whole ordeal. And the reason Jesus remains calm is because he knows that his arrest is part of God's plan. The prophet Isaiah said this about the Messiah who was to come. He said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So what does control look like? Well, it looks like Jesus in his silence. The second answer to that question is it looks like God in his sovereignty. So look once again at verses 10 and 11. Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. The only authority Pilate has is a derived authority. His authority is not his own. It's not actually even ultimately his because Caesar endowed him with it. The authority he has ultimately comes from God. Now, when we hear that, we might think, well, Jesus is really just saying what Paul would later say about governmental authority. In Romans 13, we read this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, that is true. But Jesus is saying far more than just that. What we need to remember is that all of the events that took place on Good Friday, Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, all of that took place under the sovereign authority of God the Father. None of this surprised God. I mean, God wasn't sort of wringing his hands saying, oh, I can't believe the soldiers are so mean. Or I can't believe this is what Pilate is doing, even though he knows Jesus is innocent. Come on. All of this was part of God's sovereign plan to save humanity from before the foundation of the world. Uh, Listen to the way the apostles preached on the day of Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So the religious leaders acted out of the hatred that was in their hearts. They bear the responsibility for their sin. As Jesus says here, they actually commit the greater sin. But Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Or we could listen to the way the apostles prayed in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So think about the individuals mentioned. King Herod. He acted of his own volition. Pilate acted of his own volition. The Jewish officials acted of their volition. The Gentiles acted of their volition. So they're not absolved of guilt. But they were actually doing what God's sovereign hand had predestined to take place. So who's in control? See, Sometimes we, we, we look at the world. Maybe we even look at our lives. And it can feel like things are spinning out of control. How can this possibly be happening? How can we possibly say that God is in charge in a moment like this? Look, if God was in charge and he was in charge. In the worst moment of human history. We can be confident that he's in charge at this moment as well. You know, the Old Testament story that best exemplifies this is the story of Joseph. Uh, Many of you know the story. Joseph was the favorite son of his father. Right? He's got 11 brothers. They're jealous of him. They want to get rid of him. So as a way to do that, they sell him into slavery. Unbeknownst to them, Joseph actually rises to a position of great power in Egypt. And years later, there is a, a, a famine in Israel. The brothers make their way to Egypt in search of food. And it's Joseph who actually has the power to give them food or not. And he reveals himself to them. And then their father dies and they're fearful. Well, now he's going to get his revenge on us for what we did to him. And here's what Joseph said. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are Today, everything that happened in Joseph's life, his being sold into slavery, his imprisonment, his rise to a position of power, all of it happened under the sovereign hand of God. We don't often see the plan, but God is in control at all times. And if he's in control at this moment of Jesus' crucifixion, he is in control today. So let's pray and thank him for that. Father, we do thank you that you are sovereign over all of human history. Uh, We can look back and see it. Sometimes when we look ahead or we look just out to the present day, we, we wonder, we have questions, how can this be? And yet, Lord, you are in control of all things. And we are so grateful that your plan for our salvation was set before the foundation of the world, that Jesus would be born into this world, that he would live a perfect life, that he would die a sacrificial death and that he would be raised again to your right hand to intercede for us and to make a way of salvation for us. So Lord, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to neglect that. And we pray that you would help us to take great joy in what you've done for us. That Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world. And we pray this in his name. Amen.